In Genesis 38, there's an intriguing story that gives us a lot of food for thought. It's one of these stories that people may turn to study ever once in a while, but not very often. Rather, it's one of those vignettes that can easily be passed over without another thought being given to it. And yet this story has a profound lesson for all of us. A lesson about the pulls and distractions of this world. Today we're going to take a look at a window of time in the life of the patriarch Judah. We're going to see how he drifted from God and the progression of ruin that this brought on his life and those around him and how God helped him turn his life around. As we begin, we should understand what sort of man was Judah. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 29. This is where we first see Judah introduced. Genesis 29. Genesis chapter 29, and we'll begin in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Now remember, Jacob had gone to his mother's brother's house, and he fell in love with Rachel. He thought Rachel was the cat's meow. And Laban, his father-in-law-to-be, had other plans. You see, his oldest daughter was unmarried, and that just wasn't going to cut it. And so on the marriage day, with aided and abetted by a, probably a little bit of alcoholic drink, uh, after the wedding night, Jacob found out that he had married Leah. Big surprise. Big surprise. So this is the scenario, this is the situation that Leah finds herself in. She was not the intended of his heart. And so she prays and she says this. She says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, remember, he, that is God, opened her womb, but Rachel, her sister, the one whom Jacob really loved, was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Well, on down we read of the births of Simeon and Levi. And then in verse 35, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, his name shall be called Judah. Yehudah, meaning praised. Praise. That's what Judah means. And she stopped bearing. So Judah was the fourth son of Jacob. Like his other full brothers, he doesn't seem to be as valued by his father. Not as valued as his half-brother Joseph would be. So we can see that Jacob and his family finally... Uh, decide to go back to Canaan. And he's very anxious about the situation of meeting his brother, whom he stole his birthright. wonder why he would be anxious. And then he hears, as we see in Genesis 33, some bad news. Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33, and we'll begin in verse 1. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. Esau's coming, right? And he's got 400 men with him. Oh, this doesn't look good. Doesn't look good at all. 
And so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front. So if, if, if Esau is going to take them out, he's going to take them out first, right? And then he has Leah and her children behind, and then finally Rachel and Joseph last. Do you think the children saw that there was a little pecking order of their father's affection? Yeah. Wives saw it too. So we see the situation. Now perhaps this registered on Judah and the other boys that they were not as valuable. And since they were not as valuable, maybe they didn't need to follow their, follow their father's instructions so closely, right? Eh, we don't matter anyway. So this perceived favoritism is going to manifest itself later in a deteriorating relationship between Joseph and his brothers. And eventually it's going to lead to Joseph being in conflict with his brothers. We'll see that later on. We see, if we turn to Genesis chapter 37, what I'm talking about here. You see, Joseph has had these dreams and he keeps telling his brother about the dreams and every time he has a dream... It puts him in a bad situation. Finally, that puts him even in a bad situation with his dad. Like, I see everybody bowing down to my chief, right? Including you, mom and dad. You know, the, the sun and the moon, they're all bowing down to me. This is all great. No, it's not. Everybody's getting jealous of him. And so finally it comes to a head. And we look at Genesis chapter 37 and verse 26. So Judah says to his brothers, they've taken Joseph. They've said, we've had enough of you, and they tossed him into this, this well. And he's there, and they're wondering what they're going to do with him, and they want to kill him. <clears throat> Some of the brothers do. And so Judah says, what profit? How much money are we going to lose if we kill our brother and conceal the blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. There's something a little wrong with that thinking. If he's our brother in our flesh, why are we selling him to be a slave to the Ishmaelites? But that's what's happening here. As his brothers listen, so Judah, after a fashion, saves his brother's life, but makes a profit off of his misery to come. And he's already starting to shape or misshape his character, isn't he? He's becoming a person that's not attuned to God. And when next we see Judah, he's moved away from his family. He's left them. Now keep in mind that Jacob is mourning for Joseph, whom they've told him an animal got him, killed him. Here's his, here's his coat of many colors and some blood on it that you can see. So Jacob is in mourning. And unbeknownst to Jacob, his son Joseph is a slave in Egypt. Over in Genesis 38... Just a few pages over, and this is where we read, beginning in verse 1. And at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. Now, Adullam was a Canaanite city. So Judah has packed up, left his house, and is living in Canaan. Now, do you think this was a good influence on him? No. This should remind us of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll read this to you. You don't have to turn there. Verse 33. Do not be deceived. Don't kid yourself. 
Evil company corrupts good habits. If you're around an evil man, you're going to become an evil man because you start adapting to his ways. This is the biblical warning. So we continue on here. And this is in verse 2. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. And he married her and made love to her. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. And she conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. And she gave birth still to another son and named him Shelah. Every time I read this name, I think my ancestral language would have been Gaelic. In Gaelic, Sheila means pretty girl. So, given modern times, this could be a, could be a thing. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. But something is wrong with this scenario here, right? Judah is having children by this Canaanite woman. He's living in Canaan. Is this what God would have wanted? You know, remember, Rebekah and Isaac didn't want Esau to marry of the Canaanite women, did he? He didn't like that. Over in Genesis 26, we kind of get a view of that. Genesis 26, and beginning in verse 34. Genesis 26, verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, 40 years old, he took wives uh, as wives Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Basmat, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. These people inhabited a northern area in Canaan, along up into modern-day Turkey. There was a Hittite empire there. But they were definitely not of the same mindset of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. We read in verse 35, And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. It brought them to grief because they saw what type of people they were. And over in Genesis 28, we see that this is a situation after the birthright situation had been stolen by, by Jacob and the conniving of his mother, Rebekah. Genesis 28, verse 6. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take from a wife from there, and that he had blessed him and gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. And he, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Ishmael, he went to Ishmael and took Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael. Abraham's son and the sister of Nebajoth, and that was going to be his wife, in addition to the wives that he already had. Esau didn't see what his father and mother had seen in the Canaanites. All he knew was they didn't like him. Didn't want you to marry one. He couldn't understand why they were not to be considered marriageable material. Now one would think that this had made an impression on the mind of Jacob and that he would have taught his children this very relevant topic in terms of who they would be marrying. But Judah goes ahead and he marries this Canaanite woman. And things began to happen. And they weren't good. Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38, verse 6. And Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, now read this, 
was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Can you imagine what he must have done for God to put him to death? God puts up with a lot from each of us, doesn't he? Look at this world. Look at some of these men, what they did on October 7th. God hasn't put them to death yet. Maybe, maybe he has, and we just don't know who's, who's been in the casualty list. But this man did something so evil, God killed him. And we clearly see that Judah, in turn, has lost sight of God. And this has led to some very bad decisions and consequences for his family. Whatever Ur did that caused God to put him to death, we don't know. But it was, must have been very evil. But the fallout for Judah's drifting continues. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up an offspring to your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep it from providing an offspring for his brother. Now this requirement here listed is later codified in Deuteronomy 25. I'll read that to you. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband of the husband's brother to her. So we see that Onan did not respect this requirement to raise up an heir for his brother. But God did. Verse 10. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Two sons. Dead. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. Really, how is he getting this? So he's blaming Tamar for the deaths of his sons. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Judah wasn't getting it yet. He wasn't getting it. He wasn't seeing who he was becoming. He had drifted from God, and though he was trying to honor the requirement toward his daughter-in-law, he was blaming Tamar for the deaths of his sons instead of his failure to instruct his children in righteousness. Are we as parents instructing our children in righteousness, as we're commanded in Proverbs 22.6? question we need to ask ourselves. Notice what Judas, Judas says here. He says, remain in your, a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. Here, you go live with your father for a while. And when Shelah grows up, I'll let him marry you and fulfill his duty to you. But for now, just go to your father's house. Get out of, my, get out of the way. Get out of my sight. He's going to forget, try to forget about her. And he has no idea what's going on. Let's put this under the carpet. He doesn't see what he's doing here is not pleasing to God. When we begin to drift from God, we don't want to face the fact that we are denying our responsibilities to God. You see, we have a calling. 
We have responsibilities to God as well. Responsibilities of obedience, of learning, of growing, of getting something for God's investment. That's what the parable of the pounds is all about, isn't it? I have gained five more cities here. Five more pounds. I've I've gone somewhere. I've grown. We start to justify our actions, our sins. But this has a way of boomeranging on us, doesn't it? Verse 12, And after a long time, a long time, years have passed, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hera, the Adullamite, though this Canaanite buddy, went with him. And now we see the result of Judah's decisions perhaps the fruits of his friendship. They're all coming back to haunt him. Verse 13, When Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is coming on the way to Timnah to shear his sheep, and she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. This was sort of like a, not necessarily just a, a, a facial veil, this was more like a burqa. That we see, you know, sometimes you can see these women in, in the Arab cultures where they're very, very orthodox. They have this kind of head-to-toe type veil on it. It's peekaboo time with the eyes, you know, that's all you can see. So this was the, the normal dress of a prostitute. And she sat down at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Why did she do this? For she saw that though Sheila, that's Judah's youngest son, had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Judah had failed on his promise. This led to Mar to act basically out of desperation. Verse 15, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. That's a way to start a conversation, isn't it? Hi there. Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge would you have? What what should I give you? Your cord, your seal, your staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave him to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. And after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So Tamar has taken a very interesting way of handling the situation because Judah has not kept his word. Verse 20. Meanwhile, Judah sent his young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. And he asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enayim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. So the things are getting mysterious, aren't they? So he went back to Judah and he said, I didn't find her. Besides the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. So Tamar disappears and Judah thinks it's okay. Well, it says in verse 23, Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. 
Judah thought he had gotten off. Didn't have to pay her. But things were going to be inconveniently brought back to his doorstep. This is the whole mindset and where this is leading him as he drifts from God. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And what is Judah's reply? Well, let's see what we can do for her. No, Judah said, bring her out that we may have her burned to death. There's a certain amount of irony in this statement, isn't there? certain amount of irony. And she will bring that right to his doorstep. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And she added, See if you recognize the se- whose seal, cord, and staff these are. And Judah recognized them and said, Well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I never had sex with that woman. Looking the camera in the eye. I'm dating myself. I thought it was Bill Clinton. I mean, this is not that old, guys. He says, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Sheila. It's interesting. Sheila means to send to. He was supposed to send him to her. But he didn't. And he did not sleep with her again. Judah has had these things brought home to him, front and center. What kind of man he had become, who he was. And he takes Tamar into his household to care for her and raise eventually her two sons. We see in verse 27, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But he drew his hand back in and his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Paris, meaning a breach or to cause a breach. We know that prophetically this breach would be healed later on. And his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and his name was Zerah, meaning rising dawn. And it was from Perez and his brother Zerah that Judah's family inheritance would come. They would be his heirs and the future kings of Judah and the modern nation of Great Britain. God blessed Tamar and the line of Judah, despite Judah and how he had acted. Judah had allowed himself to drift from God from the instructions he had been given when he was a young boy. Well, what lessons can we learn from his choices? As a young man, Judah made many mistakes. Passages that we read of his life covered about a 25 to 30 year period. And rather than listening to wise counsel from his father and recall the lessons that Jacob had taught him, he had struck out on his own and listened to the counsel and the calls of a foreign culture that did not know God. Think of the world around us. This world doesn't know God. This world does not give sound counsel. All you have to do is look at the news and see that. We have a nation now where you can't even tell a person that they're a man or a woman and what even that means. 
How smart is that? How wise are we? So this culture did not know God. This should be a dramatic lesson for all of us, especially for our young people. What can we learn from the story of Judah? First, be careful of the influences you surround yourself with. Remember, Judah went into the land of Canaan, and he finds a friend there. Now, this friend is not a believer. He doesn't seem to have been a good influence on him. It should remind us that when we leave our families, we have all kinds of choices to make, don't we? We have all kinds of choices. Mom and dad are there to tell you what to do. I don't think you ought to do that. I think you ought to put that, uh, that, put that down. You know, think about it. Think about it, what you're doing. I don't think you ought to buy that car. That car is going to be way too much for you. No counsel anymore from the parents. Where we live, how we talk, the friends we have, the counsel that they give us, it's all going to be up to us. What are we going to do with our lives? See, when we're on our own, we're making our own decisions. Where are we going for counsel? Where are we going for wisdom? Where are we going for advice? We may go off to college or our first job and we meet people who live in a particular way different from what we grew up with. We find that the longer we're around them, the more we begin to act like them. When we leave the protection of our parents' household and go off on our own, the world can end up having a lot of influence on us. The checks and balances in our lives that God provided us in our home aren't there. What are we going to do? You see, that's what happened to Judah. He goes out on his own, and he goes into the Canaanite territory, into the world, so to speak. And he started living like the people around him, making choices that they would make, doing things the way they would do things. And we saw what happened to him and his family. Why is it that we can look at life and slowly see as normal things that we know are not normal and wholesome? We see, you know, things that our country, when we were growing up, that were accepted values now are laughed at. We slowly degraded. And it seems to be accelerating faster and faster. And most of the world around us is accepting those things. That's good. That's normal. That's, that's kind. That's very tolerant. It's very accepting. This is what happens to each of us. It's okay. It's not that bad, we start to say. After all, everybody's doing it around here, right? That should make it okay if everybody's doing it. Jesus warns us in Matthew seven thirteen about normal. Normal. He says that there are two ways. There's a broad way and a narrow way. A broad path that leads to destruction. But why is it broad? Because so many people are on it. So many people are heading that way because you don't have to do anything. When you're drifting, you don't have to do a thing. The current does it all for you. Right? You're just laying back in that boat, headed down that lazy river. Where are you going? I don't know. When are you going to get there? I don't know that either. 
What's it going to be like when you get there? I don't know. A lot of uncertainty in that way. Jesus says there's also a narrow road. Why is it narrow? Because there are few that find it. Probably fewer still that stay on it. This road leads to life. Have you ever experienced getting on the wrong road? Maybe you're in a large city. The Demores are here, maybe driving around Dallas area. That's a fun place to drive. You're driving along and suddenly you realize, I took the wrong exit. Where am I going here? A little bit of anxiety sets in, you know. You start to feel really uncomfortable. Where, where am I going here? Where does this road lead? I'm not familiar with this one. And when you finally get your GPS to connect and it works and you get back on the right road, you start feeling less anxious. And you feel more safe, you know. Now I'm back in familiar territory. That's the difference between being on the broad way, the wrong way, and that narrow path. This leads you to your destination. Think about that anxiety for a minute. Now, if you stay on that wrong road after a while, you start to say, well, hey, this is where I'm going now. It starts to feel okay. It starts to feel normal. You see, that's the way life is, isn't it? It starts to feel normal. It starts to feel okay. It's okay if there are 57 different genders. And you happen to be one of them. I don't know which one you are. Are you a he, she? What are you identifying with at the moment? This is, this is how confused we have become as a society. Is this okay? This is who we are now as a country. We live in a foreign land. We are strangers, sojourners, brethren. Is it affecting us? Judah was on that broad road. He embraced the world, and he was doing everything that everyone else around him was doing. He married a non-believer. He started a family, but his family reaped the rewards of living like the world around them in Canaan. His eldest son was so wicked that God took his life. His second son disregarded God's commandment to raise up an heir for his brother, and God took his life. Then Judah failed to honor his promise to Tamar to wait for his youngest son to grow up. He thought that she might forget the living back at home with her mom and dad. Besides, he thought, yeah, she's responsible, really. Somehow, somehow, both of your sons just don't die married to the same woman. This just doesn't happen that way. It's interesting that in 1 Chronicles 2, we see the listing of Judah's children. Yet the descendants of his last son by his Canaanite wife are not listed. Maybe he didn't have any children. But for whatever reason, they're not listed. First Chronicles 2, verse 3. Judah had five sons in all by his wife, Bashua. It's the first place and only place you'll see her name listed. The Canaanite. And he had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The oldest son, Ur, was so evil that God, that the Lord killed him. By his, second, uh, by his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Judah had two more sons, Perez and Zerah. Perez had... Two sons, Hezron and Hamel, and his brother Zerah had five sons, Zimri, Ethan, Haman, Calcol, and Darda. Shelah is nowhere listed in his descendants. So as if God said, okay, that chapter is over. That chapter is over. We're on a different page. 
The latter two sons enter the scene after the Judah's Canaanite wife, Bashua, dies. Judah was lonely, right? He goes after with his friend up to the area where he's going to have his sheep shearers working. So here again is his friend, the Canaanite, this good influence on him. Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, learns of this and dresses up like a prostitute. Basically, Judah asked her to have sex. All this was normal, right? Normal in the world in which Judah was living. This is okay in our society too, isn't it? Not a problem. Have your one-night stand. It's not a problem. This is the way everybody's doing it, right? This is the way the world works. The same can happen to any one of us. We can get tempted. Tempted on the internet, walking in a store, person you work with, person in school. It can happen. How do we counteract this? So Judah asked this prostitute to have sex, but he left home without his American Express card. So he has to leave his personal identification with her. It's like, oh, here, let, take my license instead. How good is that? Three months later, she plays that card with him to be, keep from being burned alive as a prostitute. They have to say, again, there was a certain irony that Judah wants to burn Tamar alive for something he had done. It takes two to do the prostitution thing, doesn't it? And when she used to be brought before him, she tells him that he's the father of her unborn child, children. Shows him her ID, his ID, and then basically the rest is history. Question for us. When we depart from God's way, is it possible for us to get back on that right road? Does God have a GPS for us to get us right back where we need to be? It would seem this would have been a poignant moment, Judah's wake-up call. Maybe God had led him to this very point. Think about this for us. When God is telling us, you're in danger here. Get your act together. The Bible doesn't say this is a turning point, but something prompted Judah to go back and somehow connect with his father and his brothers and seek to be a godly man. Because the next time we read of him, he and his brothers have been sent to Egypt to buy grain to survive this terrible famine that is gripping the land. And unbeknownst to him and his brothers, Joseph has become the prime minister of Egypt. Number two man, right under Pharaoh. Joseph wants to get his family to Egypt, and he creates an elaborate kind of ruse to get them there. And he accuses his brothers of spying and stealing grain. And so Joseph keeps Simeon as an assurance that they'll bring their youngest brother back to Egypt to prove that they're not lying to him. And when they bring Benjamin back to Egypt, they dine in his house. And again, he makes it look like they stole the grain because he puts the money back in the sack of each of them. But he puts this silver cup from his home in the bag of Benjamin. Uh-oh. When he's taken into custody, that is Benjamin, Judah stands up to explain. We start to see a new mind in this man. Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44, verse 16. 
Genesis 44, verse 16. Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? He's pleading. Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found the iniquity of your servants. And here we are. My Lord's slaves. So he's thinking that they're all going to be slaves now. Both we and also whom, with whom the cup was found, Benjamin. But he, that is Joseph, said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man who's in whose cup, in whose hand the cup was found, that is Benjamin, shall be my slave. As for you, go up to your father in peace. You can get out of Dodge. You've got a get out of jail free card. This is not what Judah wanted to hear. And now he shows a repentant spirit. Verse 18, Then Judah came near to him and said, O Lord, please let your servant speak the word in my Lord's ear. Do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. You're a mighty man. You're a powerful man. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Is that a jealous son? No, he's explaining the reality that he has had to come to accept. My father loves Benjamin. He loved his mother more than mine. That's a lot of maturity that's taken place there. He also said, how if something were to happen to Benjamin, it would hurt his father. It would, might even kill him. Verse 32, for your servant became surety for the, lad of my, for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as slave to my Lord. He's saying, let me be your slave. Let Benjamin, my brother, go. What a change. What a change in this man. Judah offers to become a slave instead of Benjamin. He's showing the conviction of responsibilities to his father, his family, and to God. And at that point, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and shows them the love that he has for them. Judah is showing something too. The love and respect he has for his father and his father's kindness and his father's teaching, his father's instruction, his promise to his father. Judah is back on the path, that narrow road. He's sloughing off this bad character that he had developed and he's being clothed instead in righteousness. And finally we see in Genesis 49, the prophetic view is about all of Jacob's sons. And we come to Judah in verse 8. Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49 in verse 8. Your brothers will praise you, Judah. Your hand will be at the throat of your enemies. It certainly is right now, isn't it? And your father's children will bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. My son, you have grown up from the prey, crouching like a lion. He lies down like a lioness. Who would dare rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, 
until one comes who owns them both. And to him will belong the allegiance of the nation. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. Binding his donkey to the vine and the mare's foal to the thick tendrils, he will wash his garments in wine and his robe in the juices of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What a difference from the man who was becoming like a Canaanite, who was living like this world, making choices like this world. A man who would be seeking God and putting God first. The reality, brethren, is that any one of us could find ourselves in the position of Judah. We could be drifting from the narrow path onto that broad road. There's a warning in Hebrews 2 that we should listen to. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to those things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word has spoken through angels, proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, the calling that we have from God? How do you put a, how do you put a, a monetary value on that? This is the keys to the kingdom of God that God has offered us in His calling, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, God also bearing witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. We have such a valuable opportunity, brethren. Relationship with the creator of the universe. Drifting. Drifting takes no work. Drifting lulls us to sleep to the ever-increasing speed of the current. It doesn't require resisting. It doesn't require battling. It doesn't require anything of us. Just the current of this world takes us along. We can drift by neglected, neglecting the tools that keep us on that narrow path. Prayer, study, fasting, and meditation. And I will add wholesome fellowship. Having good friends, godly friends in your life. We all need them. When we drift, we lose our desire for these tools. We lose our desire to pray. Perhaps at first out of guilt. God is telling us something. We lose our desire to study. What's the use? A bunch of words. We lose our desire to think about these things and how they apply in our lives. That meditation that's so valuable, it puts it all together into action. We lose the desire to fast and we lose the desire to assemble ourselves with God's people. God gives us warnings. We can choose to heed them or ignore them. God wants us to wake up and get back on the path. Judah ignored the real reasons, for instance, that his sons died. It wasn't Tamar. It was Judah. Bad decisions. Marrying a person who, who didn't know God, who wasn't going to teach his children, and he didn't teach his children the paths of righteousness. 
could we be ignoring God's warnings in our lives? If we find ourselves drifting, brethren, what should we do? Be aware, be attentive, listen to what God is showing you. Listen. Judah finally saw himself, who he had become, and where that was taking him. And he repented and turned his life around. This is what God wants for each one of us. Let's ask God to restore our love for study, prayer, meditation, and fasting, and to not forsake the assembly of ourselves as we see that day coming. And it is coming, brethren. Take a look at the news. God's people are commanded to assemble. Hebrews 10.25 In closing, let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. When we think about God dealing with us, 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. What promise is that? His promise of salvation is ultimately Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth and give justice and give life and give knowledge. He's not slack concerning His promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He is patient with us. He is kind. He endures a lot from us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is giving this world a lot of time, but that time will run out. It will run out on us too, brethren. We need to sense when we are drifting and to fall on our knees and to ask God to open our eyes to our sins and the direction of our lives so that we can repent. And if we do so, our life story is going to be one of encouragement, just like the life of the patriarch Judah.